Well, we're going to take, we're going to take uh, our Bibles out and turn to 2 Kings. Uh, this evening we're in chapter 24. We only have one more chapter to go, and then we'll start a new book. And again, if you have any suggestions, uh, throw them my way. But this is probably it tonight. I won't take any requests after tonight. So if you've got a book in mind, let me know. How to pray, a subject. How to pray. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe what we can do is another Q&A where we have the question and answer, you know. And that, was, that really, really went over well the last time we did it, and that'll be one of the questions that we'll answer. So uh, if you have a question, a biblical question, why don't you write that down about any subject, doesn't matter, and then I'll take those with me tonight. Maybe we come back next or in two weeks after we finish Kings and we do a, a Q&A night, and then we can go and do a book. But also, think about a book of the Bible that you'd like us to study, okay? Well, let's get started with prayer, and then we'll launch from there. We want to welcome our live stream audience that's watching with us this evening. And uh, this has been a wonderful study, but we are coming to the end of it. So let's seek the Lord and ask Him to show us what we need to learn tonight from His Word. Father, tonight we are opening our hearts and minds to the Word of God. We know that the Word is active and alive. We know that it's able to cut through the bone, the marrow, down into the deepest parts of our heart. And I pray, Lord, that tonight the Word would do its work and that we would be the better for it. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you're always working in us and you desire to work through us for the sake of others. So, Lord, may we study tonight not just for personal nourishment, but we may, may we study that we might be faithful disciples of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 1. In chapter 24, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. So, uh, just to back up and say that Jehoiakim had become the king of Judah, and, and now Nebuchadnezzar is coming up against Judah or Jerusalem. And uh, it's always interesting, and I've shared this before, but maybe for those who are newer, to know this in the Scripture. Whenever you in the Old Testament hear them say, or even in the New Testament, he went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem is on a mount. It's on a mount. It's on a little hill. So even though, listen, you might be coming from the, you might be coming from the north down to the south to go to Jerusalem. We would say you're going down or you're going south, but it doesn't matter because Jerusalem is a higher elevation. So you're going up to Jerusalem no matter which direction you're coming from. So that's something just maybe to know. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. Uh, he was concerned with Judah because of its strategic position in relationship to two of uh, Babylon's enemies. One would be Assyria, the other would be Egypt. And Jerusalem is positioned in a location that would give Nebuchadnezzar a great deal of strength and a supply chain for his fight against both the Assyrians and especially against the Egyptians. Uh, the backstory of this verse, this first verse, is that Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem because uh, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh is not a name, Pharaoh is a title. 
So whenever you see Pharaoh, uh, there were many Pharaohs. So you almost have to have a name to go with it to know which one you're talking about. But the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time invaded Babylon. And so in response, this young prince, Nebuchadnezzar, defeated the Egyptians at uh, Charchemish. You want to write it down? C-H-A-R-C-H-E-M-I-S-H. Charchemish. And then he pursued their fleeing army all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. And along the way, or maybe on the way back, after chasing them down and subduing them, he stopped at Jerusalem and subdued Jerusalem. Uh, and that made Jerusalem a vassal to the Babylonian Empire, a, a vassal to the king of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, this happened in 605 B.C., and it was the first but not the last encounter that Jerusalem would have with Babylon. Uh, this was not when uh, the majority of the people were hauled off into captivity from Jerusalem, but it is the first of three different times that Babylon came up against Jerusalem. This time they did subdue. They actually uh, made the king of, of Jerusalem, Jehoiakim, a vassal, and he was giving money to Babylon. Uh, now this specific attack is documented, it's interesting, it's documented in the Babylonian Chronicles, and that is a collection of tablets discovered as early as like 1887, and it's held in the British Museum. Um, inside those tablets, Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., uh, he comes to Judah, and, and it documents how he finally uh, really overtook Jerusalem. So we have the Bible that tells us that story, but we also have the Babylonians that are pagan. They affirm what the Bible says. That's kind of cool, because a lot of times the scientists today don't want you to think that there's authority in the Word of God, so they discount what the Bible says. And over and over and over again, archaeology has proved the Bible. Science is always playing catch-up to the truth of God's Word, always. Okay, and so this is one of those cases. Uh, this campaign of Nebuchadnezzar was interrupted suddenly when he heard of his father's death. And so what he did was he had to go back to Babylon. And that would have been a 500-mile journey. He made it in two weeks, the Chronicle says. Two weeks. Now, two weeks to go 500 miles was like, that's like breakneck speed for that day, okay? <laughs> for us, 500 miles, two weeks, I mean, we can go 500 miles in a day. You know, we'll get there tonight. That's not the case back then. And, and so he made the trek back, and there uh, he was able to become the king because of the passing of his father. But while he was gone, um, Jerusalem took the opportunity because now Egypt was going, because they heard that he had gone back, now Egypt was trying to uh, come after Babylon in a weakened time when the king had died and there's a new king transitioning. They thought, now's the time to attack. So, so Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, also thought, you know, I've been paying for two years or three years, whatever it is, we've been paying uh, this, this tribute to Babylon that's going to stop. We're, going to, we're not going to pay it anymore. 
Now, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I'm talking about a different uh, uh, time when uh, Babylon came back down to uh, Jerusalem. But we'll, we'll keep moving here just for the sake of time. And the last part of verse 1, it says, Then he, that would be Jehoiakim, turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So I wasn't that far ahead of us. Uh, and, and this rebellion by Jehoiakim took place when Nebuchadnezzar had returned to Babylon to assume the throne after his father's death. Verse 2, And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and, the, and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Now, the, the key for us tonight to understand, God is the one who is sending in the enemy from different directions and different tribes against his people. Judah is the land of the Israelites, God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. Why would God do that? Why would He bring down the enemy against His own people? Because He made covenant through Abraham that if they would be faithful to God, He would protect, He would provide for them, He would bless them. But if they're not faithful to Moses, if they, if they don't keep my law, if they don't follow after me, then I will not protect them. And they will become, you know, they'll become the, the, the animals that are eaten by the strong. And that's what he's doing here. He's bringing judgment against Judah for all of the sins that they had left God. They rebelled against God. They took on the gods of other nations. They were worshiping false idols. And God's had enough. And listen, by the way, don't think that God in the Old Testament isn't a loving, merciful, gracious God. He gave them over 80 years of prophecy by prophets foretelling if you don't turn from your wicked ways back to God, then this is what will happen. Told them you're going to be hauled off, off into captivity. And the people didn't change. So here's what we know about God. While God is trying to show grace and mercy and, 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 and love to them and patience, but God also has foreknowledge, meaning He knows if the people will ever repent from their sins. And he knew they would not. And so with God being God, having foreknowledge, he said, I'm going to go ahead and, and bring my judgment against them. My wrath has been stored up, and I'm going to release it on Judah. And of course, we know what happened. They were hauled off into captivity for 70 years. Okay? This is the beginning of that. This is the beginning of that captivity. So, verse 3, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. Uh, Manasseh was a wicked king. He did repent at the end of his life, but it was too late. God had already said, I'm going to bring judgment against Israel. God keeps his promises. There were times where there were kings like we studied last week or the week before, of Josiah, where everything he did was to bring reform and bring people back to God. And God blessed him for it. But God still was going to bring judgment. You, you can't talk God out of being pure and holy and just. See, 
In this world, the highest court in our land is the what? The Supreme Court, SCOTUS. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, SCOTUS meets, and these are, get this, imperfect people. Not a single Supreme Court justice is, is righteous all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? That they, they, they're not. And so that's the highest court of our land. They're not, they're not absolutely righteous. So God stands alone in his righteousness and in his judgments. And that's why it says the judge of the universe must do right. Why? Because if he didn't do what is right, then he'd be a liar. He would, be, he would not be God. God cannot lie. He says, I'm not a man that I should lie. So when he says, look, here's the deal. If you keep this, then I'll do this. If you don't do this, then this is what I'll do. He means it. Israel, now he gave, he showed patience. He gave them time, even after they had rebelled against him. He gave them time to come back to him. He used the prophets to go to them and tell them, turn while there's still time. They wouldn't. He, and God knew they wouldn't. So finally, he brings judgment. So I've spent time here, but I just want you to, there's something to learn about the character of God in this. Don't ever try to, in your mind, when it says in the Old Testament that God told, you know, uh, the, told the people, go and wipe them off the face of the earth. The, the, even the animals of that tribe, even the children. And we listen to that and we go, no way. No righteous God would ever do that, okay? And can you tell the future? Do you know what's going to happen in five years, in 50 years, in 500 years? God knows, the Scripture says, God knows the end from the beginning. From the very beginning, He already knows the end. Meaning, get this, think about this for a second. This will blow your mind, okay? I've said it before. Some of you maybe didn't hear it, so let me say it again. As Adam and Eve were sinning in the Garden of Eden, God also at the same time saw His Son obedient and faithful to come as the incarnated Christ and die on the cross for Adam and Eve and our sins. Is that not cool? That God was already looking ahead. At the same time, God sees the church being raptured up. He sees the end. He sees the judgment day. He sees the book of life or the book being opened. And there those who would die and go to hell and being sent to hell and those who are righteous going to heaven. He sees all of it. He knows from the beginning whether you will be saved or not. In fact, I, I was taught when I was raised in the particular church, a holiness movement kind of a church, that when, when you get saved, your name is written in the book of life. That's not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians 1, from the foundation of the world, God knew you and called you. While you're running around in this world living for Satan, totally rebellious against God, 
God, by His grace and mercy, is calling you. The Holy Spirit is trying to draw you to God, convict you of your sin. And the second that you're saved, guess what? If you'd said, man, God, I can't believe, can you believe that? that this guy, of all people, God saved? God's like, look in the book that I had from the very beginning. His name's there. His name's already there. Now that gives you a picture of the greatness of our God, the power of our God, the splendor, the majesty, the supremacy, the superiority, the sovereignty of our God. What a great God that you and I serve. Amen? Wow. So, he's going to bring judgment because of the wickedness of Manasseh and those kings like Manasseh who turned from him and brought uh, false idol worship into uh, Judah, into Jerusalem. Uh, you, you, you would think that he's going to honor the fact that these are his people, but God is just. And even though he loves the Israelites, he's going to be just. He's going to do what's right. And they deserve punishment. They deserve his judgment. They earned it because they didn't follow him, even though he gave them fair warning. So, God's will concerning Judah was spoken by the prophets to bring Judah into judgment. And the best thing for Judah to do was to submit to God. They did not. So that's why they are experiencing God's, God's judgment by these other nations coming in. By the way, those nations that he mentions here in the text that came in, that God brought in, all of those nations are vassals to Babylon. So God is using the nations that, that Babylon has conquered, and he's saying, well, I'm going to send those nations in, and that's what they do. Verse 4, and also for the innocent blood that Manasseh had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. This tells us that one of the great sins of Manasseh was that he persecuted the godly people in that day. There were people who still were following God, faithful to God, worshiping God at the temple, doing everything they could to honor the Lord, and he put them to death. Manasseh was putting God's people to death. Now, this carries over into the New Testament. Manasseh's name is omitted from the royal lineage of Matthew chapter 1. All the kings, uh, their lineage is found in Matthew's genealogy, not Manasseh. His name is not there. Okay? That's very interesting. Now, verse 5, the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they are written there. And 2 Chronicles, just write it down if you will. We're not going to turn. But 2 Chronicles 36.6 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar intended to take Jehoiakim to Babylon bound in bronze fetters. Okay? Yet, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 19 Jeremiah 22.19 tells us that he would be disgracefully buried outside of Jerusalem. So what was it? Did he go to Babylon, as the Chronicles record, or did he stay in Jerusalem? Okay, In verse 36 again, 2 Chronicles, it states that, he was bound, that, that Nebuchadnezzar bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. 
doesn't say that he went to Babylon. He was bound in fetters to be taken to Babylon. Okay? Uh, he may have been released after promising subjection to King Nebuchadnezzar. But his burial outside the city of Jerusalem reveals that he was buried unceremoniously. To be buried outside the city is like, is like that's, that's the burial they, get, they give uh, uh, an animal. One of, one, of the theolo- one of the commentaries actually said he was buried like an ass. That, that's the burial he got. The same burial as a donkey because of his unfaithfulness to God. Okay? Um, verse 6, so Jer- Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, I'm going to say chin, I don't think it's pronounced chin, but I don't know how to pronounce it. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoi- Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Okay? Uh, you have Jeho- Jeho- we've studied Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. I mean, this is getting real tough here. Um, I'm glad we're almost at the end of the book. I don't think I can handle another Jehoah, whatever what the name is. Uh, and verse 7, And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So if you think about the geopolitical struggle going on between Egypt and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt. He, 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 he absolutely has the greatest empire on the earth at that time. They were the dominant power. Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan, or Elnathan of Jerusalem. Man, I need to take a drink after that. Um, in 2 Chronicles, again, chapter 36, but now in verse 9, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 9, it says that Jehoiachin was actually 8 years old when he became king. Now, wait a minute. We just read that he was 18 years old. Scholars believe it was a misprint in spelling. That's what they think. Because they actually, they're using words that are written in different languages, and they're translating, and they think it was a mistake, that it, it was supposed to be Uh, 8, but they said 18. Okay? Now, verse 10, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. That means that it was surrounded. No food or drink could go into the city. No one could come out of the city unless you wanted to be handed over to the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. So he would be 16 uh, years old when he was hauled away Okay, as the king. Uh, Now the king of Babylon came with his armies against Jerusalem. Let me tell you, when you have the greatest empire on the earth coming and surrounding you and the king of the greatest empire itself coming in person, uh, that's a big deal. And that would put fear into you. 
And so this young king grabbed his closest people to him, and he went out to the king hoping that he would spare his life, and he did. He was going to let him live in Babylon, but not in Judah. Okay? So like his rebellious father, uh, God allowed Jehoiachin to be taken as a bound captive. Now one commentary writes it this way. His presence in Babylon is attested by tablets listing oil and barley supplies to him, his family and his five sons. They, it was during from 592 to 569 B.C. And they named him Yachin, king of the Judeans. So he did, in fact, make it to Babylon, and that's where he and his family lived uh, there in Babylon. Uh, it's interesting to note that the fall of Jerusalem didn't happen in one swift battle, as I said earlier. It occurred in three stages. So let me get this to you. Write this down. I've got some bullet points for you. It's short. It's not long, but just something that might help you understand the chronology of what's happening here, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar initially subjugated the city of Jerusalem. That would have happened in 605 B.C. So basically, he left the people there for the most part. He just made them vassal to him. They were part, they were under his power, okay? Under his sovereignty. Isn't that sad? The people of God who have the one true sovereign God over them, they gave that up to be sovereign, to be under the sovereign care of an earthly pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Crazy. Okay, next. The destruction from Nebuchadnezzar's marauding bands followed from 601 to 598 B.C. So they kept raiding Jerusalem, raiding Judea, the surrounding villages, from 601 to 598 B.C. Then the siege and fall of Jerusalem occurred under Nebuchadnezzar's main army on March the 16th, 597 B.C. The commentaries have, the, the, the scholars have put it together that that's when it occurred. Some of it they are getting from, they're taking what we know plus what the Babylonians have recorded in their chronicles. Okay? And then lastly, Nebuchadnezzar returned to completely destroy and depopulate Jerusalem in the summer of 586 B.C. So there were some who were taken in the initial charge, then others came later. And then finally, in 586 B.C., everybody who was anybody was taken captive to Babylon. He only left the poorest of the poor. He took all the craftsmen, all the skilled laborers, he took all the important people, all the politically correct all the people that seemed to be somebody. He hauled them away. All the wealth, everything. Okay? And by the way, it was in 586 B.C., that last assault, that he leveled the temple. Literally leveled it. You say, how? Because the temple was built with sand, with limestone. These huge, huge, I mean, huge blocks standing that high. Blocks of limestone. And they were cut out of the quarries below the temple below uh, uh, there, close by the Temple Mount, and uh, hauled up and put in place, and they fit perfectly. And then around the top of the temple, they had gold, because the temple 
was to symbolize, especially inside the temple, especially in the Holy of Holies, but it symbolized heaven. So you have gold around the outside of the temple. They said the temple, and you say, how did they do it? How did they, how did they completely, you know, level limestone like that? Here's what they did. They came in and they built great fires all the way around the temple. Great fire. And the heat from the fire busted up the rock. And they said when you came in afterwards, you actually saw all the sandstone that was close to dust, small pieces of it, and in the midst of it, gold, melted gold. So literally, they took the temple down to nothing. Now, who really did that? God. God said, you will not mock me. And that's what they were doing. And so God leveled the temple that He gave all of the the, the, the specific, uh, uh, everything about that temple that was built was built by God. He's the one that told them how to design it, what gold goes here and there, and what to put in this spot and that spot, every piece of furniture, every utensil. He even laid out the Levites by tribes. The Kohathites were to be the ones, the family of Kohathites or the tribe of Kohathite. Uh, they were the ones who would, who would pack up the Ark of the Covenant, when they would move it in the Old Testament, when they had a tabernacle. Everybody had a place. Everybody had a part that was a part of the Levitical tribe. Everything was given by God, and God leveled all of it. And He had those priests that had become evil. He had them hauled off into captivity. He had their names changed. The people that went into Babylonian captivity didn't, were not allowed to keep their names. Mothers and fathers were separated. Children were separated. Can you imagine going to Babylon and finding out that your child is in some faraway land? Because, see, they're the greatest empire. They have vassals all over. They have whole nations that are now in subject to them. And they'll send one member of the family to this nation and another to that nation that don't even speak the same language, and they're given new names. Those kids were raised not knowing the Lord. Their parents did not know the Lord because when they were living in Judah, they were not faithful to God, and now these kids will never know. And they don't even know their Jewish name. And when they returned 70 years later to Jerusalem, they had no records left. So unless your family told you what tribe you were from, you didn't know. Most of them knew simply by what was passed down, but here's the problem. They couldn't prove it. No records. Everything they had was stripped of them. All the records kept in the city were gone. You are literally starting completely over. And all of this is God's doing because of their unfaithfulness. If there's any message coming out of the kings, both first and second kings, it's that when a nation drifts from God like Israel drifts and they don't return to the Lord, God brings judgment. And it is harsh. It's hard. And, and looking forward now, from our time looking forward, 
the final judgment when Jesus returns is going to be even harsher. Jesus is not going to come back as this, this kind, gentle, humble servant walking around loving everybody and just forgiving sinners. That's not what the Bible says. It says when He returns, He will come with eyes like fire, a voice like a rushing water, His hair is white like wool, and He's riding on a white steed. And as He comes back, there's a double-edged sword coming out of His mouth. And He's coming to do battle against any and every army on the earth that has lifted up its name against the one true living God. And He will defeat them. And the Bible says that the battle in Armageddon will be so great that the blood will be up to the bridle of the horse. Blood. Jesus is not returning to offer forgiveness. He's already done that. And it's still, we're still in that day of great grace and mercy. God is giving us the opportunity right now to turn back to Him. He's going to do it at the end. Before Jesus returns, there's going to be the 21 judgments that God brings. And every one of those is to wake us up that people on this earth will turn to God. Literally, He's going to take like two-thirds of the sea and it's going to rot everything in it. Can you imagine the stench of all the life under the ocean, under the, under the surface, that's going to rise up and swell up and rot? He's going to take all the mountain peaks, the beautiful ice caps. They're going to melt. The water is going to run down and cause great flooding. The people who have worshipped the Sierra Club. I'm not, look, I, I, I'm all for Let's be good stewards. But the Bible clearly says that we have dominion over this earth, over the animals of the sea, over the animals in the sky and on the land. And that's what man's role is. And, and that the, we're to eat from the animals. And the things he's going to do are going to just, I mean, you would think it would cause people to go, maybe there is a God. Because it's prophesied in the Bible, and now it's happening. But you know what? It says that they're going to be gnashing of teeth. They're angry that God is doing what He's doing because they have made things on this earth their God. And now God's taking out the things that they've worshipped. That's what they're angry about. They're not turning to God. It just hardens them even more. It's like God, like we talked about Sunday in the message, God gives them over to the desire of their heart, their wicked heart. So that, that's what this book is all about. For us, it's not that God's going to do what He did there the same way to us. That's not true. You can't take what He's doing here and say this is what it, God's going to do now. This, no, that was specifically for Israel, His cho chosen, holy, and dearly loved. But it is a sign. It's a type pointing to the very end when Jesus returns. That's what you and I ought to be concerned about. You say, well, why should we be concerned? Because we're already saved. We know we're going to heaven. That's true. But the concern should be the people that live in your neighborhood, the people that you call friends, 
that you still have not communicated with them, inviting them to know Jesus. You've not shared the gospel with them. How do you not share the gospel with somebody you call a friend when you know what the end's going to be for them? See, this should compel us to go into the world and preach the gospel. And it's as simple as this. Uh, uh, on, uh, what's today? Wednesday. Yesterday morning, I went to the county commission chamber along with about 30 other people. And one of our members, Brian Remsnyder, uh, retired as a, from the sheriff's office. He was a, a key leader of the canine division. And uh, in fact, now in his retirement, he and his wife and his two children, they, they actually have a canine business. They've, already, they've had it for several years now. And he will still be training dogs for service with uh, law enforcement. Uh, that's his thing. And he's very, very, very good at it. We, we sat in that chamber as the county commissioners, one by one, spoke about him. Several of the county commissioners said, your Christian witness has had a great impact. The fact that you, we all know that you fear God. And I said to Brian afterwards, you know, he was making the comment that he knows of a couple people who, through the years of serving, that they, they came to the Lord, you know. I said, Brian, let me tell you something, buddy. Based on the parable of the sower, Jesus said, throw the seed. And he said, throw it everywhere. Throw it on the hard places, the rocky areas, the weeds, and then throw it on the fertile soil. But don't throw it on the fertile soil alone. Throw it everywhere. God will take over from there. And God will bring people to Christ because you were willing to throw seed 25 years ago. And God's going to bless that seed. And that's the truth. We're going to recognize Brian Sunday at church for his years of service. Uh, his wife, uh, Kat, uh, Kathleen, she served 40 years, 65 years providing service and protection to our community. And both of them are absolutely strong in the Lord. They live, they talk, and they walk the talk. That's who they are. And that's what every Christian ought to be in this day in, that we live in. Because you just don't know that some of the people that are rejecting you or laughing at you and mocking you, you, hey, some of them, their name's written in the book of life. They just haven't turned yet. But God knows they will turn. So you got to be faithful to do your part because that's part of how they come to turn. Amen? We cannot be angry and mad and hate people on this earth. You can't do it. Because if you do, you won't share Christ with them. You won't love them enough to share Christ. We need to repent of that. We need to share it with everybody. Amen? Well, that's what the, that's what the prophets did for uh, Israel. They kept sharing the truth, and they, kept being, they got laughed at, ridiculed, mocked, uh, thrown in prison just because they said what the king didn't want to hear. Well, that's us today. Be willing to go the extra distance for God. Take whatever comes. That's God's work. 
When it says, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as, as the Lord had foretold, this gives us insight to what happened to the furniture in the temple, the precious things that were still found in Solomon's temple. And, and so this was a major, major uh, uh, destru destruction. Verse 14, uh, this would be Nebuchadnezzar. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, a thousand, all of them strong and fit for war. Nebuchadnezzar not only took the material treasures of Judah, he took the human treasures of Judah. Anyone with skill or ability was taken. This is where you might want to read the book of Daniel. This would be a great study for you to read the book of Daniel now. You know why? He was one that was taken away, and it's right here. This is when Daniel was taken away. Okay? He was part of the first captivity back to Babylon. He was one of the princes. He was actually related to David, so he was royalty. Daniel was. And he was taken as a captive to Babylon and was groomed in the Babylonian schools in order that he might serve in the court of the king of Babylon. He became a great statesman in the Babylonian kingdom. He became a great statesman and leader in the subsequent Medo-Persian empire that would overtake Babylon later. He was, he was an exceptional mind and an exceptional conviction about God. And he never gave up that conviction the whole time he was serving in a pagan kingdom. And he was serving next to the king. Also among the captives was the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was hauled off in the Babylonian captivity. You could read the book of Ezekiel right now. All of his prophecies that he gives in, Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel were, were, were during this period of time when he was hauled off into captivity. Okay? Verse 17, And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. See, the, all the names had to be changed. The name Zedekiah means the Lord is righteous. The righteous judgment of God would soon be seen against Judah. It was being carried out. God was being righteous in bringing judgment. And since Nebuchadnezzar had completely humbled Judah, he put a king on the throne who he thought would be submissive to Babylon. He chose the uncle of Jehoiachin. Now, Zedekiah inherited what was left of Judah. So what was he inherit? What did he inherit? Nothing. Poor people. Poor people that don't even have the ability or the resource to rebuild. That's why at the end, towards the end of the 70-year captivity, Nehemiah was heartbroken when he got word that the walls of the city were still in ramble. 
So even though he's the king, there's nothing to be a king over. Nothing's left. Uh, verse 18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatul, or Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So he's just like his daddy. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11 through 20, it tells us more of the evil of Zebediah or Zedekiah, specifically that he did not listen to Jeremiah or other messengers of God. So what did Zedekiah do when Jeremiah came and told him, You're, you need to repent, the people need to repent, the ones that are left? What did he do? He had them thrown in prison. That's what he did. <laughs> this guy's evil, man. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. So God's long-suffering, his patience has worn out. He's had enough. And now he conquers Judah. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. In Jeremiah 32, verses 1 through 5, it tells us that Jeremiah clearly told Zedekiah that he would not succeed in his rebellion against Babylon. Zedekiah had had all these false prophets telling him, you'll be victorious, you'll be victorious, you'll be victorious. So when, when uh, Jeremiah gave him a negative word and said, God said, you're not going to be victorious, that's when he has him thrown in prison. I don't want to hear a negative word. That, that would be a bad way to live your life. That when God speaks, you, you go the other way. Or when you have friends that are Christian and they lovingly are trying to open your eyes to the truth and you say, you're not my friend, get out of here, I want no part of it. That's, honestly, that's what we see happening today in this culture. If you don't agree with the sexual sin that people are committing, that they're trying with all their might to make normative, for our society, if you say, no, I'm sorry, uh, I love you, but I'm telling you, that's evil, and God's against it. Well, now you are their enemy. They don't want anything to do with you, for not all, but many, you're their enemy. They want nothing to do with you. So you're literally turning against God, because all we are, we're just salt and light for God, right? We're His representatives. They're really rejecting Him. So the moral of the story is that Zedekiah had no real faith in Israel's covenant-keeping God, and so it was also easy to break his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't believe in anybody's covenant. I live for myself. Sound familiar? So Zedekiah just, this is interesting, just before the Babylonians in that siege came into the city to take over, at night he set out to leave the city with his company, with his, with people that were closest to him, with soldiers, everybody he needed. And he, he was trying to flee the city before Babylon came in. Well, they caught up with him on horseback. And, and the end was not pretty, believe me. As they got near Jericho, they caught up with him, and they made him watch as they took his two sons and put them to death. Then they poked his eyes out. Zedekiah. There is a passage, I can't remember where it is, I looked at it today, 
where it says that he was led to Babylon. It was part of a prophecy. You're going to be blind because you're spiritually blind. And so God said, well, let me, if, you're going to, if you're going to go ahead and choose blindness spiritually, then let me just go ahead and make you physically blind. So they left only the very poorest people in the land to keep the vineyards and so forth. Because, see, this is still under the umbrella of Babylon. So there were some resources that Babylon could, could, could benefit from. So they left just the poorest to work the fields to get the harvest and have it sent to Babylon. That's your whole purpose for existence, because your king and your people have completely resisted God. Uh, there, there are nations, and there have been, and there will be nations of people who have revival. And it seems like the whole nation's turning. But really, God's after the heart. He's after the individuals. And our nation, his number one goal is not to save the nation from communism, save the nation from socialism, save the nation from liberal thinkers, from worldly philosophies. God's number one goal is to save sinners. Everybody from the President of the United States down to the newest person who just came into our country as an immigrant. God's desire is to save them. And you and I are the salt and light to get it done, to share the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can take over from there. And, and you know, if I had said that our, our President has a reprobate mind, everybody in the room would have thought, amen to that. But if I say, but God's desire is to see President Biden fall and repent and come to God and know him and be saved, I wonder how many of us would be excited about that. Because hatred fills our hearts and it keeps us from the will and the work of God. People that see it differently, people that see it in an ungodly way, a wicked way, a perverse way, we don't have to follow a president. When I say a president, I'm not speaking of Biden right now. It doesn't matter who the presidents are from the past or the future. If a president tells you you have to do something that goes against the will of God, the law of God, don't do it. But still, pray that they'll be saved. You say... How am I going to do that? If, if they know that I'm not going to do it, they're going to cut my head off, or they're going to throw me in prison, or they're going to still pray that they'll be saved. That's the Christian calling. It doesn't really fit the picture we have in our mind, does it? But that's what it is. You're here for one reason, to reach the lost no matter what the cost. Share the love of God. Share the grace of God. Share the mercy of God. Share... All of that, but also share sin. It's a sin. Call out evil. Don't go soft on sin. Lovingly tell people when they're in the when they're in sin. Use the Bible. This is alive and it's active, meaning after you share it, this still works in that person by the Holy Spirit. 
So just be faithful to share it. Some people, you'll win. You'll win to the Lord. The Lord will, will snatch them out of the flames, so to speak. You'll be part of that. Others will go right on to hell. And they'll laugh at you the whole way until they realize, oh my goodness, why did I not listen? And by the way, they will have that conscious awareness after they die. I can promise you that because the Bible says it. Jesus told the story, not a parable, of the rich man and Lazarus. And when that rich man died, he was wicked. And he was on one side and Lazarus died, the poor man who ate the scraps, the bones, with the dogs under the rich man's table. And he ends up with, with Abraham, with God's people. And there's a chasm that separates the wicked from the righteous. And the wicked are in a place of torment. And Lazarus actually says, please, or the rich man, please send him back to warn my brothers of this. Well, the first thing he said was, can he please just take one drop of water and put it on my tongue? That's how much of a torment it's going to be for the lost who die unrepentant. And then he said, uh, Abraham said, he can't come to you, you can't come to him. He's not going to be able to help you. What you're getting right now is what you deserve. And he says, well, then, can he please go back? I have five brothers that are still alive. And you send him back to warn my brothers. And what did, what did Mo, or Abraham say? If they wouldn't listen to the prophets, they won't listen to him. People in hell, people who are going to die, and be, they will always regret that they didn't listen to what you said to them. The biggest mockers will now be the greatest evangelist in hell. Please send somebody to warn my friends, my family, of the torment of this place. They're very consciously aware of their loved ones that are still living. I'm just trying to draw a picture for you to see the importance of being faithful to share the gospel. I hope you get that tonight. That's really what this is about. Well, we come to the close, and uh, next week, this really gets interesting um, because we're going to see some things play out, some things I've even mentioned tonight, but we're going to see them in vivid detail as we close out 2 Kings. So I hope you come back next week. And then the following week, let's have a Q&A. If you please would just take a moment and write on a piece of paper a question that you might have and then just uh, let's leave them on, on that table right there. Just leave them on the table, and I'll pick them up after, after everyone's had a chance to write something out. And the, if you don't want to write anything, that's fine. But if you'd like to, if there's a question that's troubling you about the Bible or about life, what does the Bible have to say about this, this subject? Please write it down, and we'll try to address it in two weeks, okay? All right, well, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, this evening we do give thanks for your word how the Word works even when we're not present. All we need to be faithful to do is cast the seed, broadcast the seed, the Word of God, and you take it from there. I pray that, Lord, tonight each of us would be bolstered in our faith to be faithful witnesses of you. Thank you for even the model of that in our church with the Rem Snyders, how they have lived it in the workplace all these years. Even the sheriff of Indian River County said, 
these people are godly. Their Christian witness is always present. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. And all the time, amen.